welcome to the First Intuition Student Forum podcast. On this episode, we talk about foreign currency, thinking about the risks this presents both to organisations using it, the wider economy, and even your own personal life if you are planning an overseas trip. We recorded the session in front of a live Zoom audience, and if you'd like to join a future show, you can register for them. There will be a link in our show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Forum and Podcast. I'm Ben Bullman, and I'm joined again this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Hello, Dave. Hi there, Ben. How's, how's this week been for you? We're getting close to exams, so I know that we've had lots of stressed people in our, our centre, but what's it been like for you in the, in the northern part of East Anglia? Busy. I have headed even further north. I've so far been up in Norwich teaching this week. I've got a lovely class of strategic business leader ACCA students, most of them doing it as their final exam. I always think the final exam is the one that heaps on the pressure even more because for the majority of the class I'm teaching, their exam in a couple of weeks, this could be the final professional exam they sit in their careers. Do you find that one, Dave, with students you're teaching? The last one is always the one I think that means this could be the end. Yeah, I think so. I think that yeah it's almost that feeling of I don't want to be the one that has to come back you know mm-hmm. there's that added pressure of um you know everyone else is going to be passing and going elsewhere I don't want to be left behind um but it's it's you know th- those those final exams I, I really think that virtually all the institutes have got them right in the way that they're pitched um I, I think that they're they are tough exams but I think they're the kind of exam that you really should finish a qualification with a kind of that holistic view of a business not just I'm an auditor not just I'm a tax specialist it's let's look at the whole the business as a whole and let's look at the, the future of the business so I really love those exams when it when it actually comes to delivering them and I'm hoping Ben that you've told them all to go back to listen to those episodes of a podcast where we've looked at analyzing businesses and looking at case studies type exams. We've mentioned them, yeah, getting to grips with the scenario, understanding what the business is, what they do, what their issues are, and referencing that as much as possible in your answers. That's relevant to anybody doing a SEMA case study, as I say, the strategic business leader at ACCA, the case study in ICAW, the synoptics in AAT, all of those are that style of exam. They are potentially more stressful because there is less traditional learning revision just before those exams. Mm. They're all very applied, using your skills, using your knowledge, but actually constructing answers that give a credible business case as well. My guys have got a four hour mock exam tomorrow, so we will see the results of that in the next few days. What are you up to at the moment with you and your colleagues in Essex, Dave? Well, it's, it's all about exam prep. We've had say, loads of students in the, in the centre um, over the last two days so monday and tuesday this week we had the the newly crowned pq of the year in the center so winner of the um the pq of the year award um so evie was with us um studying for her fr exam so it was nice to catch up and i believe we are actually catching up with evie on the podcast in the next couple of weeks so to find out what it takes to win an award at that level so that was really, really nice. Um, it was lovely for me to catch up with students this week who were doing um, their ACCA exams. And it was, I think they were part of my very, very last class that I taught prior to going into lockdown all those years ago. So they were my AAT level three evening class. 
where we, we had to suddenly say the rest of your course is going to be online because we're not allowed to you know be in the same room as each other and now we are kind of what three four years later um back in the classroom doing our acca studies so it's, it's lovely to see those team back in nice to see that although they've had all those setbacks through through covid they're still all determined to pass their exams it's not just me and Dave this evening, though. We are joined with a returning friend of the podcast. I'm going to say good evening to Alex. Hello, Alex Griffiths. Hi, Ben. Yes, very well. Thank you very much for returning friends. It makes me sound like some sort of recurring character on like a sitcom. But yeah, very good. Good to be here. For those of you that don't know Alex, if you've not caught him on previous episodes of the podcast or you've not had the pleasure of him teaching you in college, Alex is one of our lead tutors working out of Cambridge. But we've got a topic this evening, and I thought immediately of Alex. He has really helped me prepare for covering this topic in courses I've taught. And I know he usually puts quite a good spin on things that makes it much more relevant to students than sometimes the exam syllabus would initially suggest. This evening, we are talking foreign currency. Dave, I'm going to come to you first just to talk about this concept initially. What's your experiences of foreign currency, both in the exams and out there in the real world? In exams, we see, we see foreign currency in loads of places. So I know we see it in the FR papers that you teach, Ben, that I don't fully understand. Um, and there's, there's where you've got things like overseas subsidiaries, where I own a business in the US. So that U.S. company has to meet all of the regulation of the, the U.S. accounting authorities, which means submitting their accounts in dollars because that's the local currency over in the States. But because it's U.K. owned, we need to also include it in our group accounts and group accounts in the U.K. have to be in sterling. So we have to convert from one currency to another. Um, when I worked as a financial controller, I worked for a company that was a, it was a pharmaceutical consultancy and we operated um, all around the world um, running clinical trials and doing lots and lots of work to help um, pharmaceutical companies with the testing and the rolling out of new drugs and new kind of pharmaceutical um, therapies. And the three main currencies we dealt with were we dealt with sterling because all of our expenses were in sterling, we were a UK company. But then we ran clinical trials in the US. So we generated lots of revenue in US dollars. We also generated lots of revenue in Europe. So we had lots of euros. So we had three bank accounts, a euro bank account, a dollar bank account, and a sterling bank account. And the, the tricky thing for us is because all of our expenses were in pounds, we then had to work out how we were gonna get the dollars or the euros into sterling to make sure that we could pay our bills. So I, I saw it there and probably, the time I see foreign currency most is when I go on holiday. And that's that's when, to me, it's most important is understanding what currency I'm going to have to, you know, if I go to a restaurant, I'm going to have to pay in and then making that decision about, well, where do I get the currency from? How do I get the currency? How do I make those payments? So I see it in all of those different ways. Brilliant. Alex, you are our financial management guru. You've taught financial management across all of the qualifications. You do financial management from the perspective of risk. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of the uh, okay, that risk of if, dare I say, we've got to basically pay a bill or we're going to receive an income okay, from a customer. Um, maybe in a few months time usually involving like a credit transaction it's the, that risk that in that credit period 
how kind of that exchange rate can move and kind of leave us out of pocket. Um, it is a, a, a concept for a lot of students as they don't often do masses of this um, in their work that you can easily get things confused or interpret things the wrong way around because the exams, whether you're doing SEMA, ICAW or ACCA, they can be really subtle with their wording in certain techniques where you can get everything backwards. But um, as I know, I've got a few people here who I'll be teaching FM to and getting revision in the coming weeks. You've got to be good at the basics. And if you're good at the basics, the rest will kind of follow. Um, okay. So um, I do end up repeating myself, even on a revision course for ICAW, tons of times. But it's just trying to get those basics as and again, as solid as possible. And if you've got those foundations, all the hedging methods that you then do are uh, okay, just backing it up. So let's break down the risks, first of all. As I understand it, there are three main classifications of foreign currency risk that, that students might come across. The first one I've seen is the economic risk of them being competitive in business. I wonder if you wanted to talk about that one first. Was this to me or Dave? Um, so our economic risk is kind of the risk, the longer term risk um, when it comes to our exchange rates. So as we'll come on to, we have like our transaction risk, which is always the more the short term. That kind of what I was referring to earlier. If you have a one off transaction on credit, whether it's a payment okay, or receipt, it's how that exchange rate can move in a short period of time and affect our profitability. Um, economic risk is more the longer term and how a certain currency against our pounds, how it either devalues or appreciates in value, can still affect the profitability of us doing business in that country. So this is big economic factors. Dave, as our, our resident economist, what would you be explaining economic risk to a student well, by using? Right, right now, Ben, um, uh, as you'll be aware, the, the Japanese economy is going absolutely crazy. Um, and the Japanese economy is is growing at the quickest rate that it has done for, for generations. And its stock market is reaching an all time high. I think it's something like 15 to 20 percent higher than it was at the beginning of the year. Um, Warren Buffett is piling into into Japan because he, he thinks Japan is an area that, that is going to go through a big resurgence over the next few years. Now, one of the things that's triggered that is the weakness of the yen. So the, the, when the, the yen was a relatively weak currency, which means that Japanese goods became very cheap in comparison to the rest of the world. And we all know of you know, Japanese products that we may buy, so Japanese cars. So you've got things like Nissan, um, you've got things like Sony. Well, suddenly a lot of the products that are produced in, in um, Japan become cheaper. And if you could buy good quality stuff and it's a bit cheaper, you're going to go to that area. Um, so where you're trading in the UK, you're at war with anyone in the world. And if someone in the world's currency becomes really, really cheap, suddenly their goods become cheap, which means that they can effectively undercut you compared to, compared to the rest of the world. Now, the great thing for us, Ben, is that in Britain, what's happened to our currency since, since that fateful Brexit election? It's got it's, weaker. Absolutely, it has got weaker. So in theory, British stuff, is now cheaper because our currency is weaker than everywhere in the rest of the world. So all of our amazing stuff, okay, people in the rest of the world could in theory buy at a cheaper price than they could do before. And that should really help the UK. 
Now, one of the problems is that, you know, what in the UK do we make that the rest of the world likes or wants? Um, what do we export? Whiskey. Okay, yeah, a bit of whiskey. Okay, good stuff. Anything else? I personally think we are the world's greatest, and I, I mean this absolutely seriously. I think we are the greatest country in the world for producing hard cheeses. I, th I think that like cheddar and like Wensleydale and Red Leicester and Stilton, I think are among the greatest hard cheeses out in the world. You're absolutely right, Ben. Soft cheeses, we're rubbish. You know, the, the French and the Italians, they beat us hands down soft cheese, but hard cheese, we're world beaters. Unfortunately, not many people in the rest of the world like hard cheeses. I know, Alex, you're thinking, what about Parmesan, Dave? No, that's a one-off Parmesan. It's a good <laughs> cheese, but it's not got the wide variety of British cheeses. Um, what we are really good at is there, there are two things that I know of in the UK that we are absolutely dominant in the world and should be firing our, our economy forwards because we're now cheaper than everyone else. One is missile systems. So we are brilliant at arming other people's uh, other people's kind of militaries. Um, and the other one is greetings cards. We're, we're a massive net exporter of greetings cards in this country. So those kind of industries should be doing amazing business because the rest of the world are buying them at a cheaper price than they could do beforehand. Um, unfortunately, most of what we do brilliantly in this country tends to be service based. And services around people and people doing stuff. And that's far more difficult to export to other countries and take advantage of our weaker currency. So Japan having a weak currency is great for them because they do produce quite a lot. So that's the, the wider economic factors and, and something traditionally that's always caught particularly SEMA students out where their exams are more multiple choice. Whether or not you are actively mm -hmm. transacting or trading in foreign currency, those economic factors affect all businesses. You can be based exclusively in the UK, but if the exchange rate means people can do it cheaper by converting money and buying it overseas, they will do that, particularly now in our globalized economies. So I would argue everybody is impacted by those macroeconomic exchange rate foreign currency factors. Absolutely. And you see it just by looking at where people go on holiday. You know, the Turkish currency collapsed a few years ago and everyone went on holiday in Turkey because it was really cheap. You know, before that, I, I remember loads of people suddenly going to Iceland because after the sovereign debt crisis, Icelandic banks crashed and suddenly you could go to Iceland at a fraction of the price that you could before and people really took advantage of that. So people make those kind of decisions all the time. They said, I can get great value. So the next area of risk, before we get on to transactions, I will talk a bit about translation risk. Dave mentioned I teach more financial reporting. And my main experience of foreign currency at work when I was in practice were businesses that had a foreign bank account or they had a foreign customer or a foreign supplier. And we would have to account for what we call their monetary assets. Monetary assets are cash or bank balances. They are money that the business is owed. So trade receivables or money they owe themselves payables. And if any of those are in a base foreign currency, when you produce their accounts, they've mentioned earlier, they have to be retranslated. We can only present financial statements in one currency, the presentation currency. So translation risk arises when we have to convert a foreign currency bank account into UK sterling and update that every reporting period. 
And guys, you might come across this at work where you then have to put any exchange losses or gains through the income statement, the profit and loss account. And I can vividly remember as a junior in the office, having to look up the euro exchange rate on the 31st of December and converting the euro balance on that date into sterling. And if that had increased or decreased, putting the difference to the profit and loss as foreign currency exchange gain or loss. So translation risk results when people translate currency to report it in their presentation currency. Now, you might come across that at work, very common in a set of financial statements that you have to translate monetary assets or liabilities. I doubt too many people listening to the podcast actually produce their own balance sheet statement of financial position at home. What you're more likely to come across in your own lives are transaction risk. So Alex, transaction risk arises when you have to pay or receive money in the future in a foreign currency. Absolutely. So um, this will only involve as well is, as you've kind of alluded to there, Ben, um, transactions on credit, where there's a difference between when the actual transaction, the purchase or sale takes place and when the customer is going to pay us or when we are due to pay the supplier. Um, but it is very much just how that exchange rate can fluctuate then. And if you're doing this on quite a dare I say, volatile currency, even in quite a short period of time, there can be quite big swings. Um, in those currencies. And these, this is usually the type of risk that we are often having to plan for in our exams. If you're doing like financial management, SBM, ICAW, or whether it's SEMA F3 at SEMA or ACCA FM, it comes up quite a lot. Okay, because this is the scenario where they can play around with uh, what, either what country we're in, uh, okay, to start with. Uh, or whether it is a foreign receipt or payable and all the different hedging methods that we have then to try and manage that risk going forwards. And I suppose one of the main concepts from that perspective with financial management in itself, this is not businesses actively setting out to make money on foreign currency. There are some people that do. They actively trade it to make a profit on movements in foreign currency. This is businesses that are forced into using foreign currency because they've either got to pay a supplier or receive money from a customer in foreign currency. They're not looking to make money out of this. They are looking to avoid risk. Mm. I'm right, Alex, aren't I? In financial management, it's all having an element of certainty. If I could say today how much this was really going to cost me, I can budget for that. I can realistically forecast. Absolutely. And one thing that all of these papers will try and occasionally throw in to trip you up, but also to help is if I am due to receive 10,000 euros in three months time, um, check to see actually if you've got any costs in euros in three months time, uh, okay? Because we will have them what's called a natural hedge um, in that both will naturally offset. So yeah, if I do, I'm gonna receive 10,000 euros in three months, but I'm due to pay 8,000 euros in three months, well, actually, the only bit that I'm actually left exposed to is the £2,000, well, €2,000 profit difference. And this is something that's always kind of forgotten about by students, because you've got to think, well, what actually is the risk we're exposed to? So netting off receipts and payments when we've got those timings uh, okay, is always vital and something I'll be saying repeatedly over the coming few weeks. So, so that's what I would class as a natural hedge. It's a natural offset of things that would be happening anyway. Um, 
Practical example for you here. Um, regular listeners might know we are off to Florida as a family in a month or so's time. And currency in Florida, we're going to be spending dollars. So as a family, we've got an outlay of spending money in dollars coming up. My two daughters have been asking all of our relatives recently what they want for their birthdays or could we have some spending money for our trip to Florida? And what have they asked their aunties and uncles for? Could you give us some American dollars? And actually, um, one of our uncles has given us dollars for the girl's birthday. That, I guess, is an actual hedge. They have got an income in dollars because they know they're going to be spending dollars in the future. They have naturally offset their currency risk. Not that they were consciously thinking of that. They are only 14 and 12. They just wanted some spending money for their holiday. Absolutely. And when you are going abroad and things like this, it's always just be careful, if, especially if you're a student and you've got this coming up in an exam. Just remember what rates you're going to get from the bank. Then when you go to buy your dollars or if you're receiving money from a customer when you're selling your dollars, because they won't be at the same rate. Oh, let's just explore that one a bit more then. So this is another source of confusion for lots of students in exam questions. They will be given different exchange rates at different dates. But even on that date, there will be two exchange rates. Dave, which one should we be looking at? What's the, the logic behind this? OK, well, if you if you're online today, Ben, and um, today's the 24th of May uh, 2023 for anyone that is listening in the future. Hi, future people. Um, the current exchange rate is 1.15 euros to the pounds. Um, now, there are some exceptions to this, but in general, if you are either look, looking to exchange currency either way, you're not going to get an exchange rate of 1.15. You're going to get one of two exchange rates. And most banks or bureau to charge or anywhere where you can buy or sell currency will give you two rates. There'll be a buy rate and a sell rate. So if the, the current you know, rate on the market that we look online is 1.15, if you go to exchange currency, you're probably going to get something like an exchange rate of either 1.1 or 1.2, something like that. So there'll, there'll be two exchange rates, one where if you are taking euros and exchanging them to pounds, and one if you're taking pounds and exchanging them into euros. Now, general rule of thumb is that if you're looking to exchange some currency, either way, if you do the sums with both the higher and the low rates, just work out which one gives you the least money. And that's the one that you're going to end up with. So if today you had, say, 500 euros and you wanted to work out what they were worth in sterling. OK, so effectively how much sterling you'd have to pay to get those 500 euros at 1.2, it would be 416 pounds at 1.1, it'd be 454 pounds. So if you go to the bank and you want to buy 500 euros, you're going to be paying the highest of those two amounts. So you'd be using that rate of 1.1. Uh, so 554 pounds. Now, a lot of people say, why are there two rates? That's just confusing. Well, if you think there are two rates because the bank needs to make a margin, they need to make money on that exchange. So if you look at the difference between those two amounts, 416 pounds versus 454 pounds, it's about 38 pound difference. So if they're buying 500 euros and also selling 500 euros, the bank are going to make about 35, oh, about 37, kind of 40 quid or so on both of those exchanges, about £20 on each one of those transactions, which, you know, it's a nice amount of money to make for €500, Euros, but it's not, you know, eye-wateringly bad. Um, and that's quite a big spread. So if you're looking at those different rates, 
Okay, I, I know that there are clever ways in terms of thinking about, I'll always use the big one, always use the small ones, small ones. but if you're stuck, just use both rates. And, and in most exams, you've got a spreadsheet. So you can do that calculation super quickly um, and just work out which one you're going to use. You're always going to be worse off financially because the bank need to make their margin. So that, that's what I would tend to look at between those two, the buy and the sell rates. And this is the logic as to why I will always convince anybody when we're coming back from holiday to go and spend your euros at the airport. I go and buy toffee fee or a giant Toblerone in the departure lounge because I know if I convert my money back into sterling, I'm actually going to get less back than I parted with to buy it before we went out. Get a massive chubba chub filled with little chubba chubs. <laughs> That, I always used to do that, Ben, but I, I no longer do that. Um, and I, I now very, very rarely um, get foreign currency to go abroad. So the, the way that I, I, I am always kind of using money when I go abroad is I use a bank account which um, gives me preferential rates in terms of exchange rates. Um, and uh, I, the bank that I use is a bank called Starling. There are other banks that do a similar thing. But what that allows me to do is go to, I think, pretty much any country in the world, use my card as if it is a native card. So use it as if it is a, a dollar bank account or a euro bank account. And it gives me the exchange rate that is as close to the bank's exchange rate on that day. So there's a very, very minimal margin that's actually made. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it does save quite a substantial amount of money over going to the bank, exchanging currency and then using that currency with a bonus of I don't have a load of leftover euros that I've got to go and find a Toblerone to buy at the airport to make sure that I use up. Exchange rates obviously fluctuate over time. And so going back, Alex, to the main risk, we are worried that if we need euros in three months time, the exchange rate is going to move between what it is now and then. So it costs us more money. Could we go and change our money up now and have it sit there in the currency we want? If I'm going on holiday in August, could I go and get my foreign exchange today? Because I know today, certainly, how much it's going to cost me in pounds. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Um, there's different ways you can kind of essentially fix that rate for the future today. So um, you can. And I think Dave even may have mentioned it. If not, I'm hearing things because I like to hear them um, in terms of you could just go to the bank and ask for a forward rate and say, what rate will you give me for three months time? And we can organise it like that. And we get that exact, as you said before, Ben, that exact certainty as to what the rate will be in three months time and how many euros we will get for our pounds. Uh, the one that you've just started alluding to there, and we're going quite technical here, but we could try and fix the rate for the future today. But by how, as you've said, how we borrow and lend with the banks. OK, and this, as I'm sure, will send uh, okay, little, uh, okay, words of fear through people who have got ICAWFM with me next week. But we would do a money market hedge. Okay. And the idea is still, but how are you borrowing the end with the banks? Like a forward, you're fixing the rate for the future today. Okay, So if I have got a foreign payment that I've got to make in three months time, I would try and offset that today by creating an asset so that... Okay, my asset, my bank account that I'm earning interest in will grow enough over those three months to pay off that supplier in euros in three months time. Of course, I would 
to fund that, take out a loan in the UK today. But at least then in the UK today, I know what the rate of interest is and the cost is going to be in pounds over those three months. So it's a little bit more hassle, a bit more time and admin, as you'll always get marks for saying in your FM exam. But I think you might, by doing it all the donkey work yourself, you might get a slightly better rate than just going to the bank and asking for a forward rate agreement today, where they do the work. So I suppose in people's own lives for holiday money, it's kind of similar to having one of these prepaid foreign currency debit cards that I've seen out there, where you could go and load it up with euros today. You would have to have the cash today, which means if you're not liquid, if you haven't got the money, you'd have to borrow it. But you could borrow it in the UK and convert it today. And that means the money's sitting there in euros when you want to spend it. Any other things, Dave, that you have um, seen in exam scenarios or advice over the years with regards to foreign currency and transactional risks? I think the idea you talked about there in terms of um, in terms of buying your foreign currency in advance is something that is becoming more and more straightforward to do. Um, so it used to be the case that the only people that could get a foreign bank account were businesses in the UK. The only way you could get a, a bank account that dealt in dollars or dealt in euros would be you'd have to be a national of that country and you'd have to have a bank account in that country and then you'd have international transactions that would happen. But there are so many banks now that will allow you to hold a UK a UK sterling account, a dollar account, a euro account. And there are some that will, will offer them in, in multiple other currencies as well. I know that, that PayPal does this. So if anyone's got a PayPal account, you can have a balance in pounds, you can have a balance in dollars, you can have a balance in euros, you can even have a balance in Bitcoin if you want to. And you can choose which of those wallets you want to spend from when you're when you're buying. So it's much, much easier for you to, to make those kind of transactions in advance. But then, as Alex said, you're, you're tying up your money early, which means you're losing any kind of opportunity that could arise from that cash. So then with the Bullman Millions, you'd be transferring money from your high interest UK deposit account, moving it into your dollar account. And it's unlikely you'd get be able to achieve the same kind of returns on dollars as you could in sterling being based in the UK. So uh, although it's a good idea, I think, to, you know, for some people to budget and to you know, put money aside and have it waiting in that currency for that dream holiday, it can mean that you lose out on opportunity. Um, one of the other things that you can do through making those kind of deposits, if you were, say, tucking away money every single month into that dollar account, because you're doing it over a period of time, you're getting an average of that exchange rate over a period of time. So although sometimes it might be high, sometimes it might be low, you're, you're smoothing out the highs and lows over a period of time. So there are kind of other impacts that you could have if you know you've got that future transaction coming up. We've got a broad demographic of listeners um, and lots of different age groups listening. <laughs> Me and Dave are quite old and we can remember a time before the euro, which I guess added a whole new dimension to holiday spending money for most of us who I am presuming would holiday around Europe. But I'm old enough to remember that if you went to Italy one year, you would need Italian currency, you would need lira. The year after you then chose to go to Spain and you would need pesos. Maybe you had a weekend for a trip to Berlin in Germany and you needed Deutschmarks or the summer after you go to the south of France and you would need French francs. 
actually these days a, a lot of people have grown up with the euro and it has made transactions around europe so much more straightforward and reduce some of the risk of having the need for lots of different foreign currencies and lots of different exchange transactions going on. The euro being commonly accepted is a, a really, really good thing. I suppose the other thing you could do, and we, I'll be interested to get your thoughts on this, in the exam, it quite often says you could negotiate with your supplier or customer that they actually pay you or receive the currency in your own domestic currency. Would we advocate taking a load of £10 notes on holiday with us to Ibiza and trying to spend that money in the bars and nightclubs? What do we think, Dave? I'm not convinced the bars that I go to would accept a currency that is not their own. So I don't think that's a particularly good idea at all. Although there are certain parts of the world where taking things like US dollars is actually an acceptable form of currency. So there are, there are certain parts of the world where maybe the local currency is not very stable and traders will willingly accept dollars instead of, um, instead of the local currency. There are also places where it, if there's a lot of American tourism that takes place, they will actually accept dollars because the Americans are coming, they're bringing their dollars. It's a very stable currency and it's widely accepted. It's easy to convert back into the currency that they use. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's a... You know, it's a, it's a tough idea, uh, or, or or it's something that's necessarily wrong. But yeah, if you're going to if you're going to Spain and say I want to buy something with pounds, and you know, if we think about the extent of sterling, you know, we're a small country, and taking our small country's currency and expecting other countries to use it, bit of a long shot. If you're the US, which is you know the world's reserve currency, then you know, most other countries understand what it is, and you've got a good chance of being able to use it there. I think. Bringing that back to the exam scenarios, Alex, um, quite often worth suggesting that. What are some of the practical problems of almost forcing your supplier to be paid in your own domestic currency? They're the ones taking the risk then. So if they do want to change it back up into their own local currency, it's, it's on them. Then. So if that pound that we have just given them falls in value and they want to change it up into their euros, they're going to lose out. So um especially if it's us paying a supplier, uh, okay. we might be able to negotiate it, but unlikely. Uh, okay. And certainly if it's a customer paying us and telling them that pay us in pounds, they'll probably just go and buy their goods from somewhere else then. So um, it's un highly unlikely. Uh, okay. um, as Dave said there, if you're going, unless you're going on holiday to maybe Benidorm in Spain and where there's a lot of... Uh, okay. A lot of Brits abroad, you might be able to get away with it there. But in exam world, it's always something you can write. Um, and as long as you discuss the kind of downsides of it. Um, but um, highly unlikely. Um, so, yeah. And as you say, it's the, the competitiveness of the, the, the businesses at stake, isn't it? Presumably, if you force that on the supplier, they could kick back and charge you more. So you lose money on that perspective. Or as the customer, as you said, Alex, they will walk away and go and buy from somebody else that will trade in their currency if that's particularly what they want to do. Um, as Dave said, though, all I would say, just to add to that, which I think is quite a nice point, something you can suggest in your exam is that if you are doing business with quite an, with a business in an unstable currency, you can actually suggest setting the currency in a third currency. So you can kind of both kind of share some of that risk. So if I am selling goods out in 
Ben is away there, and I've just no idea why I've said that. But you might decide to set the currency to dollars, uh, okay, so that you both can share in some of that risk. We've talked about risk management and managing risk, trying to bring an element of certainty and avoiding losses. But they, there is also the element of foreign currency traders that look to speculate, to, to make money. Very rarely do we see that in the exam scenario, but it, it does operate out there and probably closer to you. I would imagine not too far from you in the city of London, there will be people in the the city that are actively trading currency, not to offset risk they've got, but to make money. What's your what's your experience of, of that? Well, it's something that students are often uh, kind of really interested in, um, particularly as we teach it in FM. Um, and a lot of people say that, you know, that there are some questions about how, well, you know, you lose the opportunity to make money or why wouldn't you as a business, if the exchange rate's not favourable, why wouldn't you just hold on to that foreign currency and wait for the exchange rate to change so that you actually get more money? And the answer that we always have to kind of keep going back to is that, OK, if you make more money from that transaction, you're making money through speculating on foreign exchange movements. Now, that's fine if your business is set up to speculate on foreign exchange movements. But we always have to think about our shareholders and why have our shareholders decided to be shareholders of our business? And if I'm a shareholder in Tesco, it's because I think that a supermarket is a good thing to invest in. And I expect to get returns based on a well-run supermarket. I'm not speculating on foreign exchange for my investment decision there. If I wanted to speculate on foreign exchange, I'd be buying and selling euros all day because that's where I think I can make a return. So it's not fair to our shareholders if we start making decisions that are based around speculation on foreign exchange. So as accountants, what we should be looking at is what does our business do and making sure we're removing risks that aren't risks associated with that particular business. You know, so if I'm a Tesco shareholder, I'm happy to take a risk on food prices changing because that's what I've invested in. I'm not happy to lose money because someone's taken a punt on a dollar exchange rate. That's not what I've invested in. Now, you're absolutely right. There are kind of in the financial services industry, there are businesses that are based on um, making investment decisions around buying and selling foreign currencies. And a lot of those people are looking to understand those kind of macroeconomic factors that would cause exchange rates to change, like what interest rates are like in different countries, what inflation rates are running up in different countries. And if I can spot a currency that I think is undervalued and is going to go up in value over time, I'll make that investment today. And there are businesses that very successfully do that. It's, for my money, seriously, seriously smart people that are doing it because you've got to understand such a huge number of different things. One of the things that I have noticed um, over the past few years, and this is purely through my YouTubing, is um, that I seem to be followed by quite a lot of financial service type providers. And I also seem to be followed with the adverts that are put on my, my YouTube videos by lots of people that are trying to convince me to be a day trader in currency. And they all seem to be people that will promise me a return of thousands of pounds a day and a perfect lifestyle of doing very little work in order to make money on foreign exchange. And they're trying to sell me a very expensive course. 
and that there seems to be an industry of people that are selling you a course on how to make money on foreign exchange. And the question that I was asked is, if you're so good at making money with foreign exchange, why are you selling a course? Why aren't you just making money buying and selling foreign exchange? My gut feel is these people don't make any money at all from foreign exchange transactions. They're there purely to scam money out of people through selling them a course. And that's the thing that I'd really watch out for is it's very, very tough to consistently make money from foreign exchange. Most people that do it will go through periods of time where they lose money, exactly like people that make money from the stock market. You know, they will make money some years, but there'll be some years where they make massive, massive losses. So it's not something as an amateur I would recommend going into at all. I think all we can do is say if we have got commitment like a holiday where we need dollars in six months time, we can look at well, what is the most cost effective way for us to actually have those dollars? You know, you could buy it now. That removes any risk at all. So you just say, I bought my currency. I don't need to worry about the exchange rate because I'm going on holiday in six months time. I've already got the dollars. Now, you could say, I'm going to wait till I go and I'm going to exchange it three days before I go. Absolutely fine. You've agreed that you're going to allow that exchange rate to fluctuate over time. And you've, you've effectively taken that risk, but you're comfortable with that risk. And I think something like dollars, you know, it, 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 yes, it is going to move, but it's not the kind of currency that's going to be moving 50% up or 50% down over time. <laughs> So, I, I would, yeah, there, there are brilliant people out there doing amazing things, but don't get sucked into get rich quick schemes dealing with foreign currency. Brilliant advice, Dave. Well, looking at the clock, we are getting near to seven o'clock. We will soon blow the whistle and call time on this evening's session. Um, Alex, any final thoughts for students that are, are sitting the exam in the, the near future that could contain some foreign currency? Um, Usually the most common from a lot of the students I teach is um, they don't under sometimes appreciate has the movement in the exchange rate in the scenario been favourable or adverse for me. And I think just as a quick gold, quick rule of thumb, we can always say that if I've got to make a foreign payment, I want my pound to be strong so I can get as many euros as I can when I trade in my pounds. So that payment I've got to make won't cost me as many pounds because my pound is so valuable. If I've got a foreign receipt, I want that foreign country that I'm receiving from the customer to be worth as much as possible. So I want my pound to weaken as I can and that foreign currency to strengthen. Perfect. From my perspective, double check your numbers, silly mistakes under exam pressure. I think in our own lives, we're used to going abroad and thinking, oh, if it says on the ticket price, this is 20 euros. 20 euros is actually going to be slightly less when I say the number in pounds. But in the exam, they will present the exchange rates in different formats and just really, really sense check your answers. Are you dividing to make the number come smaller when you are converting it? Or are you multiplying to make the number bigger in the currency when you are converting it? And try and rule out those silly mistakes, which I appreciate under exam conditions, we are all at risk of making. Dave, any final thoughts before we wrap up this evening? So in non-exam lands, when you're going on holiday and you're buying your foreign currency, don't make the decision to get your foreign currency when you arrive at the airport. The Bureau de Change at the, uh, at the airport is always, they, there's a massive margin between the buy and sell rate and you will get a terrible, terrible deal if you rock up and just try and, and change your money on the day. Think about it at least a week beforehand. 
I would say give it three weeks before you go on holiday to make your decision. I would look at the Money Saving Expert website. It is an absolute treasure trove of tips on how to get the best rates. So it will, there's a checker there where you can find the best current exchange rate. You can get currency ordered so it's delivered to your door and you will be able to achieve a much better rate than you will if you leave it to you till you go to the airport. There's also loads and loads of tips about what the effective bank cards are or effective credit cards are if you want to achieve very, very good exchange rates and low fees if you go abroad. So do your research and it will save you on your holiday yeah, tens, if not hundreds of pounds when you go on holiday. So do some research, look at the best rates, look at the best way to spend money. That'd be my massive, massive tip for anyone that's going on holiday where it involves foreign currency. Easiest way to avoid those risks, though, are go on holiday in the lovely places in the UK. Fantastic. Lovely stuff. And on that note. It is still sunny where I am in the UK this evening. I'm going to say, Alex, thank you for joining us. You have been, as always, a font of knowledge, very practical and someone that I know students love having those tips and advice pieces before they sit their exams. Dave, thank you again. Hopefully you're going to have a good week. We should be back next week. Podcast listeners, thank you for downloading live studio audience this evening on zoom thank you for your contributions on the chat box dave mentioned the money saving expert website i'll put a link to that in the chat box for the live students this evening i'll get the guys on the podcast and put that into the show notes as well have a great week everybody join us again for the next episode of the first intuition student podcast thanks guys